0: back to Peace in Their Time, episode 24, The March of the Free Corps. Last week, I left you with the earliest sort of paramilitary but also kind of just regular military Free Corps units poised to relieve the beleaguered SPD government in Berlin. Just as a quick refresh, the SPD were the center-left social democrats trying to start a new government while desperately hoping this whole revolution thing would just go away. The USPD was its splinter party of much more leftist former members who were supporting the workers' and soldiers' councils springing up that themselves were taking authority into their own hands. For the regime, the appearance of battle-hardened troopers was not a moment too soon. On January 5th, the USPD and the Spartacists had organized a massive public demonstration against Ebert and the SPD, the Spartacists being that revolutionary Marxist group formed by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. Conditions in Berlin had been getting worse for the average citizen, and with the unit of marines and even the police on their side, the leftists felt confident in being able to impose their will. However, Noske arrived back in Berlin by the end of December and sacked the chief of police in Berlin. I know how weird this sounds, but at that early moment, the chief of police had actually supported the USPD faction in Berlin. Noske dismissing him, was a clear move towards seizing control of the city's cops. The Spartacists and other Marxist groups responded on December 30th by, by organizing the Communist Party of Germany, the KPD. At the initial congress of the new party, Rosa Luxemburg wisely observed that despite their newly empowered position, the left and the revolution in general were still terribly vulnerable. The KPD could count on support in Berlin, the Ruhr, and a handful of other heavily industrialized areas but it was in no position to launch a national revolution. Plus, there was still no national figure or leadership to rally behind. Luxembourg and Liebnik were certainly prominent, but they did not command the loyalty of the masses just yet. The workers might have liked some of what they said, but they had not been convinced yet to follow them wholeheartedly. The USPD and the workers' unions, for their part, lacked a coherent game plan for a social revolution now that the Kaiser was gone. Yes, they all agreed on workers' rights and benefits, but were divided on how to advance those causes. How should society be reorganized with the fall of the empire? There simply was no consensus among them. Luxembourg saw all these problems, but pretty much everyone else on the left was ready to ignore the issues in favor of taking the fight to the class traitor Ebert and his gang. The dismissal of Berlin's chief of police was itself a deliberate ploy from Noske to call out the leftists so that his new Free Corps could engage them directly. Which brings us back to that January 5th demonstration, which was the left rising to the challenge laid before them. 700,000 people took to Berlin's streets and bore down on Ebert's office. The demonstration was supposed to be peaceful. The idea was merely to give a show of force to make Ebert and Noske back off the police. But the workers participating were in no mood for peace, and started tearing up the SPD newspaper's printing house and taking over railway stations. By the next day, most of the government areas in town were being held by the workers. Now they had a new problem. The various left factions didn't really know what to do with what they had just taken. Luxembourg, of course, disapproved of all this. But Liebknecht was the KPD man on the scene, and, well, he was kind of an excitable fellow. The rush of hundreds of thousands of workers seizing the streets of Berlin got him riled up, and he agreed to declare a new provisional government with representatives of other factions that were also present at the demonstration. This marked a point of no return, and a clear escalation of what had been happening up to this point. Luxembourg, when she found out, was suitably mad at him for doing the exact opposite of what she had told him to do. And like I've been saying over and over again, the movement was divided on taking this particular step. While the leftist leaders on the ground pushed for a revolutionary council, the leaders removed from the scene, waffled, and refused to commit. So you end up with the most enthusiastic portions of the movement directly exposed on the streets, but no consensus overall to actually commit to them. Noske took advantage of this leadership vacuum by deploying new Free Corps units to guard the government buildings still in the SPD's possession. These units were smaller than and separate from a Marker's formation but demonstrated how quickly the idea was catching on just a month after that first unit was established. Noske called in more Free Corps troops from other parts of Germany that were forming, and between the 8th and 10th, they forcibly secured the suburbs around Berlin. On the 11th, they deployed into the heart of the city. The revolutionaries had set up sniper posts and machine gun nests, but they were workers, pitted against soldiers who were well used to such things. Howitzers and mortars replied to the gunfire while flamethrower troops dislodged fortified positions. A specter of things to come was seen when a group of seven revolutionaries approached Free Corps troops and asked for terms of their group's surrender. One was sent back to advise the others that only unconditional surrender was acceptable, while the others were beaten and shot. That same day, Noske and his new troops marched past the Brandenburg Gate in triumph. The left sympathizing police headquarters was blown open by artillery fire. By the 12th, the Spartacists had been crushed. Now came the time to hunt down the KPD leaders. The SPD newspapers dropped all pretense of socialist solidarity and openly called for the killings of the revolutionary leadership. Luxembourg and Liebknecht attempted to take refuge in the heart of the city amongst the heaviest concentrations of the Free Corps, which I assume was some reverse psychology, they'll never look for us here kind of thinking. It could have also been that they saw what was coming and didn't want friends caught in the violence, and were just simply content to wait out their fates. Either way, on January 15th, they were found out. They were arrested and whisked away to the nearest Free Corps command post, a local hotel. There, one Captain Pabst began an enhanced interrogation that devolved into his men beating the two prisoners with their rifles. Pabst, who lived to 1970, pleaded after the war that he only established their identities, and that was the extent of his interactions with them. Leibnacht was first taken away, and once outside the hotel, his skull was bashed in with a rifle by a Free Corps member named Otto Runga. At this point, he was thoroughly concussed and loaded into a car to take taken to the Tiergarten, the major park in central Berlin. He was led to a nice, unlit part of the park and gunned down. Luxembourg was taken out a little bit after, and she also had her skull smashed up by Runga, who was still standing outside. Like Liebnicht, she was placed in a car and driven off. Witnesses claimed they heard gunshots come from the car, but nobody knew what happened to her body. That is, until five months later, when it washed up in the Landwehr Canal just south of the city center. Pabst reported that Liebknecht was shot trying to escape, while Luxembourg had actually been carried off by a leftist mob. Nobody believed any of that, but Nosuke congratulated the captain regardless. There was an attempt to impose legal consequences on the actual murderers, and eight men were eventually tried. Little problem with that, though. Captain Pabst was able to appoint an associate of his, Naval Lieutenant Wilhelm Canaris, to try the case as the prosecutor. Pabst wasn't facing charges himself, as he was not party to the actual murders. Extrajudicial kidnapping and violence being perfectly alright back in those days. Canaris proceeded to give a full briefing of how he was going to prosecute directly to the defendants themselves. The trial was a farce, with five acquittals, one of them getting six weeks, Otterunga getting two years, and the last, one Lieutenant Vogel, getting two years and four months. Vogel had been in charge of executing Luxembourg, and had messed up royally by doing it in a place with actual witnesses. But don't worry, though. A few days after going to prison, Gennaris posed as a naval officer under a fake name, and claimed to be transferring Vogel to another prison. Instead, he sent Vogel over to Holland and freedom. He would eventually be pardoned by Hitler, along with the other killers that night. Gennaris had charges brought against him in turn, but nothing stuck, and he suffered no ill consequences. He would go on to rise through the ranks and became head of Germany's military intelligence, the Abwehr, during World War II. He would work to undermine Hitler, and was eventually killed for this, which left him in a positive light with most historians. Uh, This definitely won't be the last we'll hear of him, but it'll be a while before he pops back up. Uh, Just try and not forget this little incident, just in case you mistake him for noble in the future. With the crushing of the Spartacists in Berlin, the government and military managed to avoid immediate dissolution. And with the expansion of the Free Corps, They now have superiority in armed force. That being said, the situation was far from secure. The workers' movement remained strong in Berlin, as it was only the most leftist part that had been dismantled. While the Free Corps was increasingly well-equipped and capable, they were a relatively tiny force, and the nation as a whole was gripped by revolution in the other major city centers as well. Over the next few months, the various Free Corps units would be dispersed throughout the nation, moving from city to city and region to region in an effort to put out the socialist flame wherever it had grown too large. Before all that got underway, though, the government took the opportunity to hold a national election to decide the makeup of a new Reichstag. This might seem like an odd move given the recent state-sanctioned violence and the inflamed sentiments across the nation, but remember the division on the left. For one, the most prominent Marxist leadership was, was all dead, and for another, The USPD were so split over whether to push against the government, even now, that inaction was their only decision. And the workers' unions and councils were not terribly proactive either. They had come a long way since before the war in forging a proletarian identity, but they were not at the point where they felt comfortable in pushing a total reordering of society. The middle class, meanwhile, was actually sympathetic to Ebert and the SPD, mostly on account of how his government was, bit by bit restoring order while not rocking the boat. Or at least, their boat, too much. So on January 19th, the election was held and it was a smashing success for the SPD. They received 40% of the vote, and 165 seats out of 423. The next closest parties were both solidly centrist groups that aligned with the SPD. There was the Zentrum, or the Center Party, which was a Catholic-based organization, And then there was the socially liberal DDP, or German Democratic Party, taking second and third place respectively. Together with the SPD, the center had secured over three-quarters of the new assembly. For comparison, the USPD only gained 22 seats out of that 423, while the KPD boycotted the elections entirely. Notably, the conservatives did not fare much better in the elections. The triumph of the center also undermined the workers' organizations that were willing to take on the government. Sure, in the urban centers, they certainly held some sway, but at the national level, it had just been demonstrated that the bulk of the nation was not ready to commit to revolution. On the same day as the election, Noske made another move to defang the opposition to the government and dissolved the various soldiers' councils. Traditional order was restored within the army, and the taint of democracy in that body was removed. While the Free Corps would still be the main instrument of repression, independent groups' soldiers could at least be removed as a source of opposition. At this point, though, it was considered too dangerous for the new assembly to gather in Berlin. Instead, the town of Weimar to the south was selected. I've actually been there. It's a quaint and pleasant town to spend part of a day trip. Ebert was thinking more in terms of defensibility, though. Marker's Free Corps was selected to secure the town in preparation for the legislature to meet there they received a rude shock when on January 30th, a group of 120 Free Corps troops were surprised and taken prisoner by local communists. Over the course of the next few days, even this small town had to be encircled and compelled to surrender itself. And given how this town was considered a safe haven, it just goes to show you just how much things were in flux within Germany at this time. The Free Corps, however, were not content with provincial towns as their targets. Their first priority was the city of Bremen in northwest Germany. The city itself is situated inland, but lies along the river Wesser, which flows out into the North Sea, which made it a seaport despite its removal from the coast. The city had been taken over by a coalition of the USPD and KPD, and was agitating for a confrontation with the counter-revolution in Berlin. On January 10th, the city had declared itself an independent socialist republic, a direct challenge to Berlin's authority. The USPD, though, got cold feet and decided this was too much. Within days, it was distancing itself from the KPD. Now the city's leadership was divided against itself after having just painted a bullseye on everybody. Noske took the PR initiative by publicly accusing the city's government of hijacking food relief coming from the US. I'm going to reemphasize, Germany at this point was still under blockade, and all this turmoil was happening in the backdrop of famine conditions. People took the accusation of food hoarding very seriously, and suddenly Bremen was a pariah city. This also meant that when the Free Corps rolled in, the nation was going to look the other way from the violence. The pattern after Berlin was familiar. Free Corps detachments would take surrounding towns and create a blockade around the target city. On January 30th, the troops were in position to move into Bremen. The workers and soldiers in the city attempted to negotiate, and there was some hope of relief coming from Hamburg. Unfortunately, they did not quite understand whom they were dealing with, and the negotiations came to nothing. The workers and soldiers of Hamburg were firmly on Bremen's side, but were uninterested in going to war for them. Half-hearted efforts to send reinforcements were made, but the local SPD and state functionaries simply shut down railway stations, preventing them from leaving the city. On February 3rd, the Free Corps entered the center of Bremen. The workers held out for two days against armored cars and liberal grenade use, and fought street by street. However, they were isolated and lacked equipment for a prolonged struggle, and eventually had to disperse. The collapse of Bremen also sealed Hamburg's fate. That city's leaders had been trying to negotiate with Noske to try and have him call off the attack. But as usual, he merely drew out the talks while waiting for Bremen to be crushed. Once that task had been accomplished, he demanded Hamburg submit itself to the government's authority. Now alone in the north, Hamburg complied without a fight. Following its victory in Bremen and the north, the government now would have to turn its attentions southwards towards the Ruhr. The workers' councils in control of the area were pushing for direct control of the vital coal mines. This move was seen as yet another challenge to the government, as the coal was key not just to the steel industry based in the valley, but also as a source of heating fuel throughout Germany. Control of the mines was essential, and the miners knew it. That end, they formed armed units to keep the local peace and defend the valley from attack. They got the news of what happened in Bremen and figured they were next. On February 6th, the workers declared a general strike in the area, a severe danger to the government given how central the Ruhr's industries had become. The workers were joined by the army garrison stationed in Munster, a short distance to the north. The local soldiers' council had rejected Noske's orders to dissolve and now threw in with the workers. Free Corps troops deployed in Bremen now turned south to meet this challenge. In case you were thinking that the regular army troops in Munster would stand and fight for the workers, you're very wrong. A small advance guard of Free Corps troops entered Munster, took the meeting place of the Council with no resistance, and calmly explained that they would either dissolve or be shot. The soldiers caved immediately and without resistance. The regular army really was a beaten force at this point it was a pitiable sight to see even taking into consideration the grueling war it had just gone through. Back in the Ruhr, the Free Corps started to make their way into the valley. The first villages were seized, and 40 workers were summarily executed. This early atrocity, committed before the situation was secure, actually backfired in the Free Corps. The workers started mobilizing to meet the attackers, and while the SPD elements in the Ruhr predictably broke from the workers' movement to avoid the potential fighting, the rest of the workers committed to the fight. In street battles raging from Duisburg to Dortmund, the Free Corps was forced to bring in artillery units and armored cars to engage the workers' army in what became known as the Red Ruhr. But as fighting continued up to the 21st, the USPD decided to do what had failed their counterparts everywhere else and open negotiations. The party did not believe that the workers could win in the long term and honestly were put off by their willingness to fight against the government. The local Free Corps commander made a deal to not engage in further operations, but went back on that agreement immediately and seized the remaining towns in the valley. The workers, understandably feeling betrayed by the USPD leaving them in the lurch, began to stand down. They did have one advantage, though, and threatened to sabotage the coal mines if the Free Corps overstepped too badly. This was an unacceptable economic risk and was a rare instance of the Free Corps being forced to check themselves. With the Ruhr quieted for now, almost as if on cue, the cities of central Germany started rising in revolt. On February 25th, a general strike was ordered throughout the area. It would be understandable to believe this will just end in tears, like all the others, and you're not entirely wrong. However, this time the revolutionaries did manage to strike back at the government more directly than the other uprisings were able to. Firstly, the revolts in this region threatened Weimar, which in turn threatened the National Assembly there. Secondly, the strikes that erupted from these revolts also shut down industry and transportation in the area. The power stations of central Germany provided electricity to Berlin, as well as linking the capital with the southern half of the country. All of a sudden, Berlin started suffering from blackouts, and the legislature was cut off from contact with the state apparatus back in Berlin. Marker, still in Weimar, started deploying troops to the revolutionary cities to restore order. In this case, he pressed Noske for a more political solution, as ensuring the area would continue to operate normally was vital to keeping the capital operating itself and also connected with the rest of the nation. To that effect, the SPD launched a propaganda war accusing the strikers of terrorism and undermining the nation. Marker also started creating a local auxiliary force of middle class and nationalistic residents in towns he occupied. The reason for this goes back to the Free Corps never having enough soldiers to permanently garrison a town, as they went from place to place and were called elsewhere after the initial fighting had died down in a region. This way, occupied towns wouldn't just fall back into workers' hands. This triple policy of Free Corps intervention, state propaganda, and setting up auxiliaries was effective. The main flare-up was in the city of Hala on March 1st, which was quickly put down by the invading troopers. By March 6th, the regional strike was called off and the area quieted down for the moment. I say for the moment, because while the Free Corps are really good at playing whack-a-worker, their lack of manpower means that the revolutionaries are pretty free to just lay low and go back to their homes. Once there, they could take stock and realize that the SPD government just set a rampaging gang of armed thugs on their communities. So while the leftist movement was taking body blows for right now, Ebert's new government was not making a good first impression among what should have been their base of support. The march of the Free Corps throughout Germany also left Berlin under garrison. The KPD took this as an opportunity to launch another general strike on March 3rd. Noske countered by shutting down leftist newspapers and disallowing public gatherings. That evening, the left-leaning army militia and the marine troops still in the city started rioting and looting. The strike itself went very well and the city shuddered to a halt. The atmosphere this time was different than back in January. At that time, the workers didn't want to undermine the government, thinking that Ebert and the SPD might be on their side or at least convinced to come around to their side. This time, the strikers were far more cynical and saw the government as an obstacle to their pursuit of better living conditions. Moske took the situation as an opportunity to call what free corps units still remained near Berlin back into the city. On the 4th, they rolled into Spandau, just to the north, in armored cars. When a crowd seized upon a Free Corps officer, the armored cars responded by firing machine guns directly into the crowd. Just in case anyone had forgotten what had happened two months ago, the stakes were reaffirmed all over again. Another set of troopers had entered central Berlin, but were confronted by an angry mob that besieged them in the capital's police headquarters. The next day, on the 5th, The situation continued to get worse. The Marines arrived on the scene and attempted to defuse the situation around police headquarters. The Free Corps troops inside took potshots at them, which turned into a firefight. A combination of workers, Marines, and leftist army troopers started building barricades in the eastern part of the city. On the 6th, a column of Free Corps troops led by a tank rumbled down the Berlin streets to relieve their fellows in the city center. Quickly seeing that the barricades erected the day previous prevented their vehicles a viable path forward, they had to revert back to their trench tactics, breaking up into small squads to take the city back street by street. They were backed again by artillery pieces, and this time even aerial bombers swooping over the city. Yes, they were bombing and shelling their own capital. Again. The counter-revolutionaries much preferred to destroy the city than to suffer it in the hands of workers and leftists. As done in January, the revolutionaries set up machine gun nests and sniper outposts, but again, they couldn't stand against the heavy weaponry brought against them. The SPD, which on the ground level had reluctantly supported the initial strike on account of their base being, you know, workers, took the fighting as their cue to bail and call for a return to work, which split the non combatant workers who were still striking in areas of the city that weren't being shelled or bombed. Being thoroughly undermined by the SPD, the general strike was called off on the 9th, and Nosuke wasn't even done yet. The rumor spread that seventy police officers had been murdered by the revolutionaries, and further stories of massacres started cropping up. Noske used this as a pretext to order anyone bearing arms against the government to be shot out of hand. No trial, no nothing. Naturally, these massacres were pure fabrication. Once the dust settled, that became obvious to everyone but it was swept under the rug, as very real massacres were perpetuated by the Free Corps in response to the stories. Prisoners were gunned down, and the Free Corps interpreted Nosuke's order against anyone bearing arms against the government as anybody with a potential weapon. In one notable example, 30 marines were lined up against a wall and machine-gunned down. Nosuke explained away the murders as being the result of a quote-unquote blood-infused atmosphere. Which is a terrifying thought, that being a blood-infused atmosphere, and the resulting murders just being a thing that happens. Totally understandable. Nothing to see here. Anyway, by the 13th, 2,000 were dead, and ten times that wounded. Entire sections of the eastern part of the city had been blown to pieces, of another foreshadowing of days to come. The aftermath for the revolution in Berlin was equally ruinous. The marines and leftist army units had been dismantled and the workers most willing to fight were now dead, wounded, or scattered. Much of the leadership were in jail or dead. The methods used to achieve this were overly harsh and would have consequences down the road, but for the moment, that didn't matter. The crisis had been seen off in Berlin, though there were still trouble spots to be addressed. The Ruhr broke out in strikes at the end of March, but a mixture of food blockades and tactical concessions to the miners eventually brought them back under control. Elements in Hamburg again started agitating against the government, to which an exacerbated Noske sent in 10,000 Free Corps troopers to garrison the city for the rest of the year. Other cities, like Leipzig and Chemnitz, were likewise garrisoned, their local councils dissolved. Most of Germany was nearly secured by the counter-revolution, but there was one more piece left to clamp down on. Bavaria. Next week, we'll move on to the deep south of Germany which had been going its own way while all this was happening. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.